0: Many of you have sent requests in to have Peter on. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a few of you, almost 3 million to be precise, have seen his video on Vice. And I will put the link to that video in the description box, which is how I became a, let's just say, Snow trafficker, because it's the first five minutes of the video, and there are certain rules that YouTube have put on us for the first five really? minutes of the video, yes. <laughs> All right, so. Okay. Um, I've read a lot of prison stories and books, and I've got to say that Peter's story, the inhumane treatment he went through in Ecuador, just, I was absolutely sickened. And um, what I found also sad was how it's like the British authorities kind of wanted him to die out there. I mean, I the extremity, <laughs> extremity of the punishment was disproportionate to Peter, who's a great guy. He's full of positive vibes. Everything I've seen him do online, very articulate. And I'm sure he's going to lay this down in detail. This is... Um, probably one of the first long form accounts he's given on one of the bigger channels. So I'm sure he's going to lay his story down in detail and take us on that journey. Also a shout out to David MacMillan; He's our most um, reoccurring (laughs) podcast guest. And he recently interviewed Peter on his channel. I will put that link in the description box. Please go down and support (laughs) David subscribe to his channel. And um, I think, in addition to what you're watching today if you want to you know watch the vice and watch the stuff that, that uh, david did it, it, it it's uh fits in nicely dovetails nicely all
1: right thanks for coming on man good to meet you
0: finally. yeah good to meet you
1: too yeah where's your accent from accent uh well i'm from gloucestershire yeah but, uh, is that my Cotswolds? yeah yeah. Part, yeah it is it's beautiful up there isn't it it's very nice but um yeah my mum's scottish my dad's local but the accent i suppose is somewhere in
0: between yeah so, you strike me as an academic chap, like myself. You know, people say, oh, Atwood yeah. thinks he's a gangster. I've never, ever claimed to be a gangster. I'm a business nerd who watched too many mafia movies. I got <laughs> some gangsteritis, <laughs> and, thought, and I was putting myself in extremely dangerous situations. Are any, do you have any parallels in your story? Yeah, to some extent. I remember when I was growing up, uh, sneaking downstairs.
1: I think, in fact, it was my mum's parents' house up in Scotland, sneaking down the stairs at night to watch the black and white tv at the grandparents house uh you know charlie chan gangster type films yeah. and uh, yeah i was i always preferred the gangster side to the cop side that's for sure yeah so uh, i was definitely the gangster in the cops and robbers games
0: <laughs> yeah i grew up on like Miami vice
1: and not just, saying just that i am, and I never claimed to be like <laughs> yourself not a gangster at all so how did you do in school then pretty well yeah I'd, did uh, well, I went to school in Tetbury, uh, Sir William Romney's. So, a big shout out to all of those students at Tetbury School. Uh, gained 14 GCSEs, all A's and B's. Uh, went to Sirencester Deer Park Sixth Form College. So, big shout out to those guys as well. <laughs> which, which subjects did you have an aptitude for? Um, I've always loved archaeology. So, I, I went on to do archaeology at uh, secondary college and university as well yeah. in Cardiff um but yeah archaeology geography biology go all of those at a level and english actually english literature
0: and which helped in the future what <laughs> caused you if you, i imagine like i did i you know you got all the time in the world to look back on your life in prison mm-hmm. and you reflect yeah. and things you kind of like if i would made this choice and that choice and you go back years and years and years and years yeah definitely was the stuff that you saw early on warning signs that perhaps you didn't heed that put you on that path yeah <laughs> what were they
1: uh I mean I got involved with the drug scene of well, drugs and the illegal party scene at a very young age what year was that then uh, 88 nine oh, summer like of love yeah I mean yeah. i you know I was only 12 13 but I had two older step- stepbrothers one <sighs> a year older than the other like three or four years older and they were both involved in organizing illegal parties and yeah. Djing at them and all this sort of stuff so I'd been the younger tagged along yeah. And obviously got involved in drugs and drug dealing.
0: So you were taking drugs at age 12?
1: Yeah, started smoking weed probably younger than that, I think. Uh, and, yeah, as they all say, it's gateway drug. Well, it maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, progressed to
0: pills and LSD and stuff like that. So... I had a bit of turmoil inside me when I was on the drugs. You know, the anxiety went away. I was the life and soul of the party. I can imagine. <laughs> did, did you, were you masking something? Did you have some kind of anxiety or?
1: For, um,
0: home life wasn't great. So,
1: yeah, I suppose to some extent. What do you mean by that home life wasn't great? Uh, my mum was an alcoholic, which mm. didn't help me as. Um So, yeah, I suppose it was quite tough growing up. Um, not a great deal of money at home. So I think that was one reason I got involved in in the drug dealing is just to offset, yeah. costs and be able to party like the other guys. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: That sort of story. Was your mum an alcoholic then when she had you, or was that? I don't think so.
1: And, uh, right. What are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to. i analyze... brain <laughs> <laughs> I'm Just
0: trying to analyze like how long. You had to live with a person who was an alcoholic. Yeah, I think that came a little bit later. <laughs> okay. As far as I can remember. But anyway. Because that's got to be stressful for a kid. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and I have some friends and, and have been in similar situations. And parents have died prematurely because yeah, of alcohol. Yeah, my mum is,
1: is dead now. Oh, she dear. died whilst I was incarcerated in Ecuador. Yeah. Which is traumatic, to
0: say the least. I can imagine. Yeah. All right, so describe then what's it like going to a rave in the summer of love at age 12? can't really remember a great deal
1: of it. But I mean, the, I remember the first one that I ever went to was actually in my hometown of Stroud. In an old, uh, it was the old Great Mills uh, like DIY center that shut down. Yeah. And it's now the post office sorting center at Salmon Springs. Yeah, And I think I was probably a little bit, I was probably about 15 by that point, 14, mm. 15. And um, Mickey Finn played there, he turned up in the morning and played. A set which is quite cool. So yeah, it was a good experience. It was all a bit sort of bewildering, I suppose, to a certain extent, being that young. And the music wasn't divided, was it? It was called Acid House. It was Acid House, Rave. It was it was yeah, that's what was that was the great thing about it. It was one music, wasn't it? It was one love and all the rest of it.
0: Did any it tracks different. any tracks stand out to you? Like for me I always remember um Guru Josh. I'm really bad with names of people, tracks and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm terrible. But um,
1: one of my all-time favorites was, you know, I Feel Loved, the yeah. uh, Donna Summer track. Yeah, yeah. That high on yeah. ecstasy in the morning is just, yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> still love that track, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. So you're quite savvy then for the drug market at a young age. Yeah. And you said you graduated into dealing from using. Was that just like hooking up your friends in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. It's, I think that's how it always starts.
1: Uh, I mean, initially it was with weed and hash. I mean, it was mainly hash back in the day, wasn't it? You know, flat press, pollens, uh, squidgy black, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Red seal, gold seal. And um, yeah, started dealing hash, smoking it as well. And then the pills and stuff were mainly at the weekends at the parties. Yeah. Because obviously I was still at school. (laughs) Um, And then LSD came on a a bit later on because obviously that's a lot... More, you know, a lot
0: stronger drug. So you had a good enough brain on you to scramble, but still yeah. managed to buckle down and get all your qualifications. Yeah.
1: In fact, I remember the, uh, the week of the GCSEs, I think it was about two weeks before the, I sat at the GCSEs, uh, Castle Morton took place. Mm. You know, I mean, I think everybody's heard of the Castle Morton free party. Yeah. It went on for a week. Of, <laughs> I was there for about five days, came back, didn't sleep for a week. I yeah. know, oh, slept for a week after coming back. And then did my GCSEs.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I remember doing something my, like that anyway. Doing my
0: business studies exams on Monday morning after raving all weekend with just like KLF and all these beeps and beep going off in my brain. I sat there doing these essays. How old are you now? So I, I am fifty-two. Fifty-two. Yeah. Don't yeah. look it. Don't play. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. So, did you have any brushes with the law at that age?
1: Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd actually forgotten about that, but my yeah, my first brush with the law, which should have been a warning sign, was at a very young age of uh, six. Six? Yeah, I remember. I actually stole <laughs> I stole a friend's mother's gold jewelry. Yeah, and hid it at home. Uh, for, oh, I can't even remember the reason there, and obviously they 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 clocked on, and the local police officer was called uh, PC Flinders. His yeah. motorbike cop turned up, big moustache, glasses. Sat me down in the kitchen. Now, Peter, when you grow up, if you don't oh. get get things straight, now you're gonna end up in trouble and go to prison. I was I was in tears, yeah. and uh, yeah, that talk obviously didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> what was the next scrape? <clears throat> uh Next one was quite some time after. It was at uh, Six One College in Sirens. Just got caught dealing drugs, and asked to leave the college, but they allowed me to sit the A-level exams, yeah. which was great, good of them. Uh, so, you know, got my A-levels and went on to university at Cardiff. Mm. And then... Was followed... that archaeology? Yeah, archaeology. Okay. Uh, so the next scrape after that would have been when I got arrested at the age of uh, about 23 uh, in 2024, I would have been.
0: 23, in what was that in this country? Yeah,
1: in Britain, uh, in May of 2000.
0: So, run down what led up to the arrest.
1: So, yeah, so uh, basically, when I got arrested at Sixth Form College, I stopped dealing altogether because I thought, well, you know, I've got to get the life sorted back on track. Yeah. Really, I wanted to do medicine, but didn't have the financial backing. (sighs) Uh, So, went into, well, decided to read archaeology, which I did. Dropped out halfway through. Uh, because of one thing and another personal issues and too much drug dealing Mm. Uh, had become involved in the Cardiff scene by that point with people like Kerrius Matthews from Catatonia partying with them Super Furries just all that sort of set you know the media set down there yeah Howard Marks was back out by that point (laughs) so I met him a few times Uh, so dealing to a lot of people in Cardiff not them But, uh, you know, dealers within Cardiff as well as students and decided to move to Bristol where my girlfriend at the time was studying and the empire spreads out into Bristol as well. Yeah. Uh, My home area. So I'm now covering quite a large area of England Uh, and then decided to branch out into Scotland. So I made some contacts up there, Um, you know, and it just escalates very rapidly. Yeah. And... Before I knew it, I'm, you know, from going, starting with half an ounce of cocaine in Cardiff, which was the first time I dealt with coke. Uh, It'd been mainly pills and amphetamines and hash and stuff before. Uh, Yeah, from going from dealing half an ounce of coke, you know, to a friend down there, up to dealing 10 keys of coke
0: a week. How do you source that much quantity? Through
1: contacts, up well, through contacts in my home area who had contacts in London. I see. So it was directly from London at that time.
0: Without naming any names, then what's the route? Is it South America, mainland Europe, and then bounces over to London?
1: No, at that point uh, we were involved with some people that bringing it. They were bringing it in by yacht through the Caribbean and in right. through uh, the south coast. Yeah, uh, they were actually arrested. Uh, the first uh yeah the first bust I think happened in 1998 yeah. and I think that's when the police started became aware of myself and the guy that I was working with because we were actually waiting at Marble Arch uh, the night that these guys got busted and one of them was on the way to us to drop off like uh, three or four keys of coke didn't make it and it was on the news the following day that he'd been busted with about 30 or 40 keys of coke mm-hmm. in the boot of the car on the way to meet us, stopped about half a mile short. And that led to them seizing 430 kilos in London and 600 on the boat in Kerry. So that was a pretty big bust. And uh, I th- I know that the guy we knew was, he was on remand for about five or six years as a Category A and got sentenced a. Uh, God, in 2002, 2003, no, 202. And by that point, I'd been arrested in Gloucestershire in 2000 and was in Parkhurst when I got sentenced. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was all what led to my first arrest.
0: So now with some of the Colombian cartels, then if (laughs) the shipments get busted, depending upon your relationship with them, they see the newspaper clippings, they see the headline news, they know you're not trying to just welch on the money and they may give you a pass when that much gets taken does the people who have signed for it do they get a pass
1: depends on the circumstances doesn't it i mean i think these guys were funded it i mean that they you know they've been doing it for a while and i think they they were funding it themselves by that point okay i mean that you know they i mean i know one of them i'm not going to name a name but i know he's worth about two two hundred million Wow. So you know. So it's just
0: the cost of doing business with him. Yeah. So yeah.
1: I mean, I, I think they just took the hit. He was on the run for years after went yeah. to Cyprus, uh, and was brought back from Spain eventually when they changed the extradition law in in Cyprus.
0: Yeah. So when you get arrested, in my case, it took months to get all my legal discovery, and I read that there was ten um, police informants that had, you know, given this information and why that came informant. about. Did you get your legal discovery and, and tra- trace back ha- actually how they caught you?
1: What, when I got arrested in Britain? The yeah, first time? This, this
0: first time, yeah.
1: Um. I mean, it was difficult because, I mean, there were informants involved, but yeah. they, you know, they PI, what's it called? public PII, P, Public Immunity Order, whatever. Protected their names. Yeah, okay. All that. So we never really worked out who it was the first time, but the second time I knew exactly who it was yeah. when I got arrested in Ecuador because mm-hmm. we were getting information from someone in the police about the ongoing operation into us. Um, yeah, so we knew exactly who it was and he knows who he is. And I mean, it wasn't just one person, but the key informant was actually named at Bristol Crown Court. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Was that person close to you? Yeah, he was because... Um, when we set up the the I mean this is going forward in time a little bit now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we set up the organisation, I suppose you could call it, our little group to start importing cocaine, there was me, a Colombian and a Chilean mm-hmm. and uh so there was the three of us as partners. Yeah. And it was the Colombian who became the informant.
0: Key informant. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's pretty close. <laughs> We're going to get to that then. All right, then. So you're going in prison for your first time. You're in your mid-twenties. Mm-hmm. What's that like for you?
1: Is it a shock? That was pretty scary. I mean, I was a long-haired hippie raver at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a photograph of me coming out of uh <laughs> chair magistrates a with my head down long hair, trying to cover my face with all that scenario. That would be great uh, if
0: we could stick that in. What time are we at? 5-2,
1: five, five, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's out there somewhere. Um... Yeah, I mean it was it was pretty nerve wracking they had me potential category A because they'd linked me to the Adams in London. Uh you know, the crime family Mm Eastington direction. Which I denied, obviously (laughs) strenuously. Um so yeah, if you're watching Terry (laughs) and all that lot. Um so yeah, they were trying to, you know, throw a whole lot of shit on me that yeah. wasn't really you know what it, what it was I mean I got caught with 5000 pills and a load of weed uh, a few kilos of amphetamine some coke, sort off shotgun uh, stuff like that so they put me on a potential A-cat uh, thing at Gloucester prison which was pretty tough because it, uh, being a potential A-category meant that I couldn't talk to any other inmates, they would close the entire wing down Bring me out on my own just to go and get my dinner. So yeah. two screws in front, two behind. I was on the book, which means that they would write down any movements if I came out of the cell. Mm-hmm. I'd be taken from A to B and they would all be noted down what time and where I was going and any everything basically totally invasive. They would come into my cell almost daily, smash it to pieces. Yeah, Just search for everything, trample all over my photographs, family photographs on the <sighs> floor, trample all over it. Do you know I mean? I got strip searched by female officers in a cell, which is like against the law.
2: It's against the law You know, they're just yeah.
1: trying to, hu- you know, humiliate you. Yeah. And also all my phone calls recorded, all my letters open and photocopies mm-hmm. sent to the police, half of which I never received anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, visits would be in a, in the visit room, but quite often behind glass, or if not, I'd have the, the SO sat on the table listening to the entire conversation. Yeah. Very invasive. And that went on for about a year. Didn't get sentenced for. Uh, I was on remand nearly two years, so I was. I, I remember one of the officers saying that I was the longest remand prisoner that they that they'd had at Gloucester for fifteen years. Wow. Uh, I mean that
0: prison is now closed. All right, so. In, Arizo- in Arizona, if you get busted with drugs as I did, it's non-dangerous. So they get into it. If you get busted with drugs as I did, it's non-dangerous. But if you get in busted the with yeah, in Arizona, but if you get busted with a weapon, sawn-off shotgun for example, yeah. then you're in the dangerous category. Yeah, yeah. And I know in the beginning they throw all this mud at you to see what's going to stick. Did that weapons charge stick, and did it compound your trouble? No, but uh, luckily it was broken down into
1: its component parts. So I said, I mean, I was dealing in antiques at the time. So I said, no, I I bought it as a, what I thought was deactivated shotgun as a a trophy piece and, you know, tried to black it off. But yeah, I don't think they really accepted that. (laughs) Um,
0: So I ended up, yeah, I got five years that first time for that lot. First day, peace loving, hippie, raver, going in, Kate, which is, if you're watching America's Supermax, how are the prisoners receiving you? Because they're pretty tough guys, aren't they? In there? What, in, in England? Yeah. First day in, it, how did they receive you? I mean,
1: no one was allowed to talk to me. Okay. So I was literally put behind the door for 24 hours a day and no one was allowed any contact with me. Yeah. I mean, not even through the door.
0: What was your first interaction with the prisoners then?
1: Uh, it was okay. I mean, yeah, I had quite a lot of respect for them, to be honest, yeah. because of
0: who I was involved with and what I was doing. Yeah. So you got... So you got um, you say you got more of an easy ride because of those connections then? Don't think so. No, <laughs> because I ended up in Parkhurst. Okay. So, no. <laughs> All right, we're going to go over this slowly then. All right, so you go to Supermax. An easy ride from who? Who do you mean? The prisoners? Or prison the... population. Oh, from you know... the
1: prisoners, yeah. But, I mean, not from the the, the uh, establishment, definitely not, because, I mean, I was supposed to go from being in a, in a category B prison when I got sentenced to a Category C prison in Illstoke, in, uh, Chibnum. And instead of that, I got sent, in, uh, sent to Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight, which is at that time, you know, high security prison.
0: So I know the horror stories about the Ecuadorian prison and the guards and the prisoners. So you're saying that you have horror stories about the British guards. They did things to you out no, there. No, not particularly.
2: No.
0: Not particularly. So it was just the fact that they classed you as such a high level and you don't get many privileges at those levels. Yeah.
1: It was just very yeah. invasive the way that they uh that I was
0: treated it initially. Yeah. So all the strip searches and everything. All right. So what was the transportation like to Parkhurst? <laughs> yeah, seven hours in a sweatbox, oh. you know, like the little
1: uh, I can't like the prison transport van. Yeah. And they're supposed to take you out every four hours, I think, for to, to use the toilet or just a break. But they left us in there seven hours, even on the ferry.
0: Are you sardined and um, chained up to people? Yeah. There?
1: No, no, because it's like individual cubicles. Yeah. Well, it was when I went anyway. And uh, I remember coming out, getting out of it at Parkhurst and having my uh, photograph taken for the ID, the
0: yeah. prison ID. And literally my eyes were going in different <laughs> directions. <laughs> Could you see out the van as it's going along the road? Uh, a little bit. That
1: always used to torment you as well yeah, because does, you're going past places that you've been to or knew. Yeah, like, oh, I... I've had
0: that. <laughs> your heart's like, I was, there when yeah. I was there. in the real world, when I had a life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not much fun. Um, um, seven hours then. So what? What happens if you got to take a piss? Yeah, but that was
1: it. I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know. Luckily, I didn't. You just got to hold on. <laughs> yeah, your dear life. Yeah. <sighs> Alright, so describe going into Parkhurst, what's that like? That was pretty nerve-wracking because, uh, I mean, at that time it was, you know, viewed as one of the highest security prisons in Britain, and obviously, you know, if you've got pretty serious people in there yeah. doing long, long sentences, maybe never getting out.
2: Any
0: big names?
1: Not that I can remember, um, like I said, I'm pretty bad with names, Yeah. but I mean, they they have a, what they call the Doll's House in Parkhurst, which is a prison within their prison, which is when it used to be, you know, used for spies. Uh, terrorists yeah. stuff like that and I remember my cell window looked out over the doll's house Yeah, uh, I think there was only about 30 prisoners in there at the time in that unit Really, but it's it's quite ominous and you know all the walls with the rollers on the top and yeah. loads of razor wire you know you're never going to get out of there did I it, think there's been one escape out of there the does it,
0: cro- it cross your mind to escape
1: oh every day whenever you're in prison every, that's all I do when I, whenever I used to be in prison shall I say <laughs> You know, you spend every day thinking about
0: how to escape at least for one hour a day. (laughs) And we're going to get to his botched escape attempt in Ecuador as we're just building up to the hardcore stuff here. Also, in the description box below the video is a link to El Infierno, which is available on Amazon, paperback, Kindle. Read it, leave a review. Honestly, it it (laughs) will blow your mind. And Peter's going to write another book as well. So... We will, uh, we will start promoting that for him when he starts to make progress on it. All right, so how long are you in Parkhurst? Uh, uh, about two, 10 months. 10 something months. Like that. And
1: then I was eventually taken to this uh, Category C prison, Oldstoke, near Chibden.
0: So in Parkhurst, did you have any cellmates?
1: Um, I did, only for a little bit, though. I think I only had one. Because of being potential category, I was a single cell yeah. nearly all the time but obviously as it went through the system, it dropped down. Uh, did you get along with your cellmate? Yeah. Did you hear his story? Um, can't really remember the guy. Yeah. Remember a little
0: bit, but uh, yeah, can't remember now. It takes some getting used to, doesn't it? You're living in a room the size of a toilet and sleeping next to the yeah. toilet. I think what you
1: could, to, to so people understand how small a prison cell is, if you've ever been on a ferry across the English Channel and you've taken a room or a cabin on one of those ferries,
0: that is virtually identical to a prison cell. Yeah. Isn't it? More yeah. or less. And then That's put a cool. toilet in there and you, when you're locked down, because it's short staffed. So farts, shits, pisses, yeah. uh, everything. It's lovely. You just really um, have to get used to it, which you do. Okay. So <laughs> Then any, any notable stories from that time that you can think of? Uh, I remember
1: a prison officer there getting a, bucket of shit and piss over his head which was quite notable
0: was he being a dick
1: yeah he was being a dick he'd already been crippled once by an inmate called i mentioned the inmates name called stagsy from uh london yeah who i won't mention the the officer's name but um he knows who he is he got crippled by stagsy in a riot and uh he walked with a limp it was a bit of a dick uh, and he got a bucket of piss and shit over his head one, one evening uh, when we were being told to bang up I remember banging up and I remember hearing him shouting you know after these other guys bang up, bang up, bang up and then yeah. oh, <laughs> I'm gonna kill you <laughs> and they left that piss and shit there for about three or four days just to you know so it stanked the wing out just to teach us a lesson sort of thing
0: there's but, no need to be a dick is there everyone just wants to get along it. and just, just get, you, know, you know stay safe really yeah just, just... Prison's hard enough as it is, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <coughs> Any other stories from that prison before we go to the next one? Uh, not that I can repeat. <laughs> so, what was the next one then? Stoke and that Which was category, category C. C. It's so yeah. like medium minimum. Uh, like uh, minimum. Uh, no, medium. So, medium cells with cellmates now. No, I think they were single. Single cells. As as oh, there was nothing but, better than a single yeah. cell.
1: Yeah, it was out in the countryside, so quite nice. Really. Because yeah. so you do outdoor recreation and stuff. Uh, I wasn't there for that long because they only took me there for release, basically, yeah. at the end. So I didn't really... Yeah, I remember sitting around on some grass at some point, mm. which was quite novelty after having been in the English prison system and there's no grass or, or wildlife. Yeah. I mean, suddenly you can touch grass. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's like, <ooh>. <laughs>
1: grass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you have a routine then? It sounds like... Yeah, um, you just buckled down and got on with yeah, whatever, yeah, reading I just tend to see, yeah
1: exactly you, you just yeah I mean that's the best thing to do if you're in prison is make a routine for yourself mm. uh, you know I'd, I'd listen to a certain radio stations certain times certain programs TV if you had a TV luckily when I went in they, they started installing TVs in all the prisons
2: yeah so
1: that was a good thing for the first year or so there weren't any TVs yeah
0: and you know it was just radios which they routinely break so I couldn't have a radio so in your twenties, I mean, I didn't read when I was a young person, but did you have uh, any authors you liked or did you just, um, what kind of stuff did you read? I used
1: read? to read quite a lot when I was in prison. Robert Ludlum read through quite a lot of books. Yeah, they're popular. All those, yeah. yeah. Um can't, Lord of the Rings did all that. Mm-hmm. Uh used to read uh, sort of classics if I could. Yeah. Uh, you know, things like Dracula, Frankenstein, you know, Mary
0: Shelley, all that sort of stuff. But, but, yeah. Um yeah, made quite a bit. So, as it's coming closer to your release, you're thinking, all right, I messed up. <coughs> going to have to make some lifestyle choices. Don't want to go back to this. Look at the shit, the stress it's put my family through. Yeah,
1: exactly, which it did. A lot of stress, yeah, a
0: lot of grief. So how long did that last, that, that thought process? Which? That you were going to rehabilitate oh, and not go okay. back to crime. <laughs> Obviously not very long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it did, it did. Um... I mean, you know, having seen what it put my mother through, particularly and my dad, my father, and everyone around me, sister, everything, it wasn't fun. And uh, I felt really bad about yeah. that. And so decided to, when I got, well, decided that when I got out, I'd set up a painting, a decorating company, because I'd trained to be a painter and decorator at Gloucester yeah. Prison. And my father was a builder anyway, so I sort of had some experience with it already. Yeah. And uh, he, he, you know, my father said, you know, whilst he's doing the building work, he would push on the painting work to me. So it was, Mm -hmm. you know, I had jobs set up, ready to go, really. So that's what I did when I got out. But (laughs) here's the but. I did say, well, basically, I mean, I I remember one Sunday I was reading the Sunday Times because I used to get that delivered once a week because it would Mm -hmm. take you a week to read it anyway. And uh, I came across this article about, uh, a seizure of cocaine that these guys had basically they they'd impregnated a load of patio furniture, you know, a lot of white garden furniture, yeah. plastic garden furniture with cocaine. And brought in a container load of it, which got seized probably because of an informant. And this had happened not long after nine eleven, so I don't know whether you remember around that time, a lot of passengers, mules, and people like that were getting arrested at airports as a subsequent, uh, as a, well, what's the word? As a well, because of the increased security yes. levels. Um, so I quickly saw that you know the future importing cocaine wasn't in blocks or in powder because. The amount of security and technology that they now have to detect to that is, well, it just makes it basically almost impossible to do yeah. unless you're paying people off.
0: So, so the like Eureka moment,
1: yeah, kind of. So, I see this and I think, well, God, if I'm going to do anything when I get out, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, I'll go and find a source of the cocaine in South America, cut out all the middlemen, you know, just the business head is, is kicked in completely and uh yeah source cocaine in south america put it into plastic or rubber and bring it into britain back process it and sell
0: it (laughs) people are going to be like you know what did he do did you just pick up the phone and call south america how did he get this stuff
2: um
1: i uh, at that time at percus had a couple of my co-defendants with me from the first case and one of them was the connection that i had to the guys up in london Mm. So when it spoke to him, he said, look, when I get out, when we get out, would you be interested in putting me in contact with some people up in London who mm-hmm. could get us a source with some Colombians who could then source the coke in South America? Mm-hmm. And he ummed an up ummed and said, oh, well, I'm not sure, you know, he's a bit older than me. He didn't want to come back to prison, understandably. And I said, well, look, have a think about it. Let's see what happens when we get out. You know, it's not going to be initially anyway, whatever, because I don't really want to go back into that life anyway. But if... If it, you know, when the day comes, uh, you know, let's talk about it. So he said, okay. So I get out, go start the painting and decorating business, which goes okay, but it's hard work, hard graft every day, coming back covered in shit and dust, you know. Mm. And it just starts, the daily grind starts getting me down. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, doing this for the rest of your life. is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then you start getting there <laughs> yeah <I can> see <laughs> and you know then people start ringing up and the phone starts ringing people are saying oh we've got this we've got that we can do this come and help us with that you've got the contacts, blah 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 and before you know it you go ah oh. it's just that day isn't there where you go do you know what fuck it and you pick up the phone and you make the phone call and then all the wheels start turning the cogs and yeah, and before you know it, you're in a prison in Ecuador.
0: <laughs> in the making of that phone call then, did you have a particular slang, code words?
1: Well, I at that time, I wouldn't talk on the phone. yeah. Uh, so it would all be face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we did used to use phone box to phone box yeah, sometimes. But even right. then, we would be... Really, that would just be to arrange the meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were using pages Prior to me, me getting arrested, actually, in, uh, when those guys got arrested in London in 98, mm. at that time, we were using the paging system where someone had send you the number of a telephone box, or we'd send it. We'd get to a telephone box, basically, send the number of the box to a pager, mm. which the guy was carrying. He would then go to another phone box and ring our phone box, so it was phone box to phone box. But... Mm. The police got wise to that, and they apparently put my voice on voice recognition uh, for the case, uh, the Ecuadorian case, should we call it? So, uh, well, this was this is what I was told anyway. Later, uh, that they'd had my voice on rec- voice recognition, and all of the telephone boxes in Gloucestershire area tapped through GCHQ, which is in Cheltenham, just local to me, which is. A, not the best <laughs> um, Yeah, so Make a meeting, go and see My friend And say, yeah, you know, let's go up to London Find find some Colombians And see what we can arrange Which we did, went to I was trying to remember the name of the area South, uh, Kennington Yeah So went and met these Colombians And initially we were just Going up there and buying coke from them and then I said to them, look, you know, why we're actually here is because I want to set up an import. So you guys seem quite cool. We're doing business already. Let's knock it up a level and start importing some cocaine. Um, you know, I've got all the, the people in Britain to sell to. Uh, I can get the passengers, take care of logistics here. You take care of that end, get it all arranged that end and we'll marry the two up, uh, which is kind of what we did. And unbeknown to me, that you know, I didn't know at that point that they were already bringing it in, in plastic and rubber. So when they pulled this out in front of me and said, oh, we're already doing it like this, I was like, no way, that's exactly what I had in mind anyway.
0: So it was just like, you know. How destiny. long, <laughs> how long did the good times last and Not what, long. <laughs> what did you, what did you spend your money on?
2: Uh,
1: I mean, yeah, good times lasted, I suppose. Two and a half, three years, something like that. Not long. Which surprised me to be honest. And it surprised me the amount of attention that the police dedicated or, or gave us because we always decided to keep it fairly low key, you know, nothing more than five, five or six kilos at a time. Which we would then repress up into up to about eight, something like that. Sometimes a bit more. So we weren't making massive inroads into the cocaine market of Britain. And yet, I, th- I think what really got under their under their skins was the fact that we were beating all their systems for detecting it and stopping it coming into the country, and that pissed them off. You know, because we kept on going. They knew we knew. They were watching us, so it was a cat and mouse game. And I think that really, really annoyed them because we were st- we, we we carried on doing it basically. Uh, all right, to turn your notifications off.
0: Yeah, I just noticed that. Actually, it's okay, yeah. noise. So, while he's doing that, I'll just say, tell the audience again. We're just leading up now to this horrific Ecuadorian Hell prison hole. experience <laughs> and the hellhole, the inferno, and the medical stuff that Peter suffered and is still suffering. As is you can hear, yeah. absolutely <laughs> barbaric. <clears throat> but it's just Can't once we get out. in the Ecuadorian prison, Oop. it's just hardcore story after hardcore story. Sorry, just uh, I, I, Peter's lucky to be alive. From oh, what yeah. I heard, I know a lot. of You guys watched our woman who was in the Venezuelan prison. That was totally off the hook. Well, um, this is this is up there. If, if yes, yeah, similar next level. He's in, next <laughs> level, but he's in the men's side, which is always next level. Yeah. So please go down in the description box. Support what Peter's doing. Check out his book. Are you doing a YouTube channel or on socials or anything? No, not really. Okay.
1: No. probably should be. But...
0: Okay. <laughs> Well, you've got plenty of time. This this will probably go in about three, three to four weeks um, if you want to go down that route. So, all right. So what were you spending your money on? At that time? You said you had a three-year run? Yeah. 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 I mean,
1: I, I, you know, we did try and keep it quite tight. I said to the Colombians and the Chilean, uh, because obviously a few other people got involved as well, I did warn them. I said, you know, don't go out and start buying flashy cars and, yeah. you know, just going crazy with the money, which some of them did. Yeah. Because <clears throat> that always draws heat,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um, yeah, I mean, I was I, I stayed I was living in an annex at my dad's house in in a one bedroom flat. I, I kept it really low key, yeah. Tried to anyway. Uh, yeah, ended up having quite a nice car. ish <laughs> what car <laughs> Range Rover? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that was actually a ringed Range Rover anyway. So <laughs> yeah, I didn't really buy that. So <laughs> Um, But yeah, I spending money, I I suppose, on hotels quite a bit at that time, uh, restaurants, uh, spending on the family, girlfriend, kid, you know, living in quite nice houses. Oh, no, not at that
0: point. That was the first time. (laughs) But yeah, um, yeah, invested some of it. so. So there's a thing called civil asset forfeiture laws. Did they take everything?
1: What on the Ecuadorian one? Yeah, no, because I was never actually charged in Britain. Ah, okay. Which was something that all the way through, ba- well, if we wind it forward a bit, I suppose. So, or we'll
0: come back to that, maybe. Yeah, come back to it. Yeah. How did the bus go down for the Ecuadorian one then?
1: So basically, we knew that we were under surveillance uh, because there'd been a couple of buses in Britain, one up in Crystal Palace, and then. Where was the other one? It was another lab anyway up in London got taken out. Yeah. And, it, you know, they started to get quite close to us. And um, I did, uh, well, we made a lab up in Edinburgh, up in Scotland.
0: You made a lab?
1: Well, we put a little lab together in a, in, a, in an apartment. Like Walter White style? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit with a 15 tonne floor standing press and, you know, various bits of equipment. <clears throat> Which was actually another funny story. The the flat that we did it in, the the flat below that was owned by Irving Welsh, and is the flat that he wrote Train Spotting in. Wow! I swear to God. Wow! (laughs) (laughs) We used to get circular mail from Mister I Welsh (laughs) coming (laughs) through the flat door. Sometimes (laughs)
0: that's brilliant.
1: I remember the 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 elderly couple across the landing from us. Talking to them on one occasion as you were saying, Oh yeah, that we that nice Mr. Irving Welsh used to uh, used to hear him tapping away on the typewriter at night. Yeah. And uh I read
0: yeah. most of his books in prison, big fan.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was a counter worker at that time, wasn't he? Tax tax office or was something it? something like that. Yeah. Right. Writing it this part of time. <laughs> and then lo and behold, years later there's a massive cocaine laboratory
2: bursting in the flat <laughs> Were
0: you at the location,
1: when I had posted. been. We'd spotted the police surveillance on on the apartment. I'd actually gone out of the apartment and followed uh, an undercover unit, which we'd noticed.
0: What, so, what had you seen to spot them? What, what were they doing? I wasn't actually there
1: at the time they were spotted, but uh, one of the guys that was working in the flat uh, in the lab, the a Colombian, phoned yeah. me up and said, "Look, we think we're being watched." Uh, there's a car down the back with a couple a man and a woman who keep looking up at the back window. Yeah. And I was like, right, that sounds like the police. Let me get back and have a look. So I've got into the flat, come up, looked out the back window. I was like, yeah, that's definitely the police. Yeah. And whilst I'm looking, they've clocked me see, looking at them. Mm-hmm. They've moved their car across the road into a car park, which I've seen them do, trying to be discreet. So I've gone back downstairs, jumped in the van I had on the hire, gone to that car park, blocked them in. Yeah. And made it very apparent that I know they're there. Let them come out. You know, I backed the van up and let them come out just. And then followed them through Edinburgh for about 10, 15 minutes. And then got bored of it and let them, you know, they went off one way. I went the other. And went back to the flat and I said, look, that was definitely the police. I think we should bail, get out of it. And the Colombians were like, oh, well, we're not sure. It might not have been. I was like, I'm telling you now, that was the police. The door's going to come through. But they wouldn't go. They so wouldn't I said, go. look, uh, you know, I said, look, oh. We're, we've got to get out of here. Uh, and I said, look, if you want to stay, you stay, but I'm gone. So I went off and stayed the night in the in Balmeral Hotel up in yeah. Edinburgh. And I'm pretty sure that night I remember hearing noise outside my hotel room door. I think that was the police. Don't know for sure. but I'm pretty sure it was. Next morning, all the phones are off. I'm not getting any response to them. I'm like, oh, fuck's sake. So, I decided to risk it, and I'd go get get a taxi back down to the, to the flat, and I'd left the van parked in front of the flat, so, yeah. to give the appearance that I was in it. So, when they raided it, the police thought I was in there, because the van was there, which I wasn't. Yeah. So... I've got back down there. It all seems very quiet. There's no evidence of anything ever having happened. Mm. Go up the stairs, get to the top, and the front door has just been smashed straight through. It's all boarded up. You know, big old, it was a big sort of uh, uh, merchant's apartment. So the door was a big, oak, solid door. Yeah. And it, apparently, it took them about 25 minutes to get through it. So in that time, the Columbians have managed to get rid of most of what was there. mm Uh, they've been arrested and remanded. Uh, It was all over the front pages of all the newspapers in Scotland, and it was right across the BBC, you know, one, two, three, four, all of it. What year was that? That was uh, 2000... Well, I got busted in 2005. It was the same year. Yeah. It was about three months before I got busted. Three, four months, something like that. So... Because of that burst and it being that close to me and me knowing there's going to be DNA in that flight that connects me to it, mm-hmm. I basically disappeared off the face of the earth, uh, dropped all my electronic communication, emptied my banks, mm-hmm. you know, got rid of all the bank cards, everything, uh, and got the Turkish mafia to smuggle me out of Britain <laughs> in the boot of a Mercedes car. <laughs> Is that another phone call to the Turkish friend? Yeah. Uh, so, so, phoned him up, friend Oscar, yeah, that's not his real name so it doesn't matter, okay. and uh, said, look Oscar, I need to get out of Britain, you know, normally at that time there's all these people getting smuggled into Britain while well, there still are, yeah. and there's me getting smuggled <laughs> So, he got me in the boot of this Mercedes, obviously not all the way to Dover, drove to Dover, then got in the boot, mm. and went across on the uh, the hovercraft thingy, is it the hovercraft? The first one, I can't yeah. remember. Something like that anyway. Something like that, yeah. Uh, so got to France, put myself out of the way because we had a property in mid-France, sort of hid out there. Was that in your name? No, 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 no. Okay. Um, the Turks gave me a car, another ringer, <laughs> to drive around in France on British plates, which is quite cool. Mm. Um, So yeah, just hid out in France for a few months. And then decided to do that one last trip. Oh,
2: not the last <laughs> trip. I'm going to yep.
1: do one last trip and retire and live happily yep. ever after. Yeah, live happily ever, happily ever after on a, on a Thai beach was the plan. So I was, yeah, unfortunately the, the informant was involved in this. Yeah, it was just a bad idea from start to finish. The last was,
2: was the
0: informant then the guy who said he didn't believe you about the police surveying you did, did he want to stay no no no, no no no
1: that was that okay. no they were still in prison gotcha yeah yeah no the informant had been busted in the in the crystal palace lab yeah uh who was like i said one of the the partners me the colombian and the chilean so it was this the colombian yeah he got released after like six months uh we you know at the time we were a bit like well how the hell are they are you know how's he got out of this mm-hmm. But it did, you know, what he told us and what we learned through the case papers, it did seem to fit. What did he tell you? I can't actually remember now. Mm. Um, I think, because, I mean, there was about five or six of them taken out in the lab. yeah. And I think he had said that the others had taken the fall. He hadn't been caught with any of the actual drugs. Mm-hmm. So he was released. But in that time, the police had turned him. Yeah, and obviously he became their star informant. And not only did he take us out, he ended up taking about four hundred other people out. Holy shit! Uh, in the summing up at Bristol Crown Court, when they when they uh, had the trial of the people that were arrested in Britain, the judge actually named him because I'd already, <clears throat> you know, I'd already pretty well done that. So the judge named him in open court and said, "Look, Mister bloody Blah has uh, helped the police." Uh, put away you know this person that person you know has had X amount of drugs taken off the street oh what a good guy and he was given I think uh, a five year no, I think it was four year sentence and obviously
0: let out the back door 400 people that must have put him on the radar of some scary people yeah quite a few people ended up dead in the case Uh just the insanity of the war on drugs something that we're campaigning to end yeah the war on drugs is just a complete all fallacy. the stuff it <laughs> comes about because of drug laws. <coughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we'll get to that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, keep going then. This is gripping.
1: <laughs> um, where am I? France, Ecuador. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I decided to do this one last trip out to Ecuador. And mm. I just knew I wasn't coming back. Yeah. I, I actually had a dream. Uh, I've, I have dreams sometimes that come true. I, I know it sounds weird to everyone, but I do. And I had this dream about being in prison in South America. And the girl that I was with at the time was also who was also arrested with me in South America. I said to her, Look, I I think you know I'm gonna get arrested out there. I described the prison, the colour of the walls, the layout of the prison, everything. And sure enough, I go out there, we get arrested. Uh it's kind of a bit of a long story short.
0: No, just keep going with it, don't you cut
1: it short. Okay. All right. <laughs> so okay. I fly out to Ecuador. She's my girlfriend at the time has gone back to Britain because she she was out in France with me for a little bit. So I say, look, why don't you come out to Ecuador for a holiday and, you know, once I clear up the business, send the meal back to Britain, we'll, you know, I'll take you out to Ecuador and show you Ecuador, spend yeah. some time with you because, of, you know, wasn't really seeing it because of all the running away st- yeah. scenario. So she comes out to Ecuador, gets arrested. The first day that she's there with no. me, I I arrived two days before. Her. She, she lands, is there about four hours. First time in South America gets arrested with me. Uh, with you? With me at uh. gunpoint in a, in a penthouse of a hotel in Quito.
0: Was it a last smashing down situation? No,
1: we'd been out to dinner and I'd clocked the, there was some sort of something going on around us. Uh, you know, there were I'd noticed a couple of what appeared to be undercover agents, we were at dinner. We were sat in this restaurant, well, the hotel restaurant, and this guy had come in, European or white-looking guy, and he sat like two tables to my right. And I'm looking at him because the restaurant's empty, and he's reading the menu but it's upside down. And he was obviously trying to eavesdrop the conversation or something, but it, you know, he definitely wasn't the client. Didn't order any food. And he sat there with the menu upside down. I said to my girlfriend, I said, "Look at this guy with the sat. Side- he sat there with the menu upside down." Anyway come out of the restaurant, go to the reception of the hotel. And I, by that time, I was quite friendly with the the, the people that were running the hotel because I'd used it a few times. Yeah. And a girl who I knew behind the reception said to me, oh, have you been to the Galapagos Islands this time? And I was like, no. And she said, you really should go. And I was thinking, we should go. And she was telling, trying to tell me, you should really get the fuck out of here. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, it didn't click. Oh, get in the, the one elevator, time. go upstairs, hit the corridor of the top floor, and get to the end. Just putting the key card in the door, and bang, out come the guns. Balaclavas on, yeah, Ecuadorian yeah. police, plain clothes, drug squad, Interpol, you know, on the floor, all that. I was like, Ooh. <laughs> so they took us in the room. They'd already been in there. They knew where the tent was. You know, they they found it quite quickly. It shouldn't have been in there. That was me being sloppy, being overconfident, arrogant, whatever you want to call it, you know, you get that sort of... The problem was because we'd outsmarted them so many times, you know, it just got to the point where I thought, well, it's just going to be one more trip. We'll we'll get
0: around them again. We'll outsmart them them again. We didn't this time. (laughs) Not at all. There's a lesson here for people. If you're going overseas and you think you can just run rings... The cops might be slow, but they've got all the resources in the world and all the time in the world and all the taxpayers' money in the world. And they only have to get lucky once. (laughs) Exactly. You have to get lucky every time. And you can end up in a foreign prison where it's life or death and raw survival, as we're about to hear. And before people call me out and say, how rude of Sean, eating a banana well, Pete's a gripping story. Um, The reason I eat bananas during podcasts is because my stomach rumbles and these stop the stomach from rumbling. If my stomach continues to rumble, <laughs> then the sound transmits to Joe, our sound engineer's headphones over there, and he gets thunder and lightning, and everything starts <laughs> to go wrong. So, voila. Okay. <laughs>
1: Plenty of bananas in Ecuador, tell you. <laughs> didn't have no sweet ones, did you?
0: Those little ones, yeah yeah, the like like, like candy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, The little, oh, little oh hands. God, I yeah, love love them. Them. yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they are my all time <laughs> favourite bananas
1: yeah there's something like 200 different types of bananas I think good grief yeah can you get those sweet ones in this country I've looked you can in fact (laughs) I'm thinking about importing fruit from South America please do I've already set the company up but because of my prior yeah life uh, I'm having
0: difficulty getting a license (laughs) to import
2: (laughs) yeah surprisingly
0: there's gonna be nothing untoward in those crates (laughs) containers I swear to god (laughs) (laughs) So are you guys then separated right away, or do they take you in together?
1: Uh, we get taken in together to the Interpol station, and um, the holding cells were in a like a, a covered courtyard. But uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Bard gates. Bard gates. Is that the one? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we can talk to each other across this small courtyard. And we end up being held there for... Five or six weeks because at the at the time we were arrested, there was a strike or a riot in the prison, mm. <laughs> the entire prison system, because of the uh, conditions there. And there was no remission at that time. So people were spending five or six years on remand, not even having seen a judge. Uh, just, yeah, horror stories going on. So... The prisoners had basically locked off. The prisons were killing each other merrily, uh and so there was no onward
0: movement. So we ended up stuck at Interpol for five or six weeks. All right. So first day, you're you're at the gate looking at your missus. She's got to be in shock. What's she saying to you? She's not happy. <laughs> She's not happy at all.
1: Yeah, very upsetting. Very upset. She's so, saying, "What the fuck? Um, yeah, but what, I, are, are, are we going? How are we going to get out of this? Who yeah, do you going to call? Yeah, sure. But I mean, just straight away, I said, look, whatever happens, you're you know, you're not involved. I will get you out of this. Don't worry. Whichever way I have to, I'll pay, pay. You know, pay, get you out. Or you know, I will take the fall. Whatever. At the end of the day, you're not going to go to prison. Unfortunately, she did when she got right to Britain, but that's a later part in the story.
0: How often could you see her daily while you were in that first? Interpol? Oh, twenty four hours a day."
1: She's just right opposite you. Yeah, yeah. Literally from like, well, not say from BT the other side of the studio.
0: Did they have other foreign people in there for Interpol? Uh,
1: yeah. When I got arrested, there was actually a bunch of Arabs in there, uh, Syrians and Lebanese who were in for smelling cocaine and funding Hezbollah. You know, buying weapons with a with a with the funds. Yeah. A couple of whom spoke English, which was handy. So I immediately fell in with them. <laughs> they looked uh, looked after me, had my back, and. A couple of their wives were in with the females who also spoke English and, you know, looked after my girlfriend. Yeah. One of whom was married. This is crazy. It was married. Oh, no. She, she sorry. She was the uh, niece of the vice president of Ecuador, Lenin Moreno's niece, was in prison with wow. my girlfriend. Wow. Uh, because she was married to one of these Syrian guys who
0: was a terrorist, yeah. alleged terrorist. Yeah. You, you've made an interesting point there because one of the things that we say in our campaign against the war on drugs is that making drugs illegal has being the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world yeah, for of criminals course. and cartels, but you've just added in terrorism. So drugs being illegal doesn't just finance the cartels and criminals all the world, it finances terrorism. Yeah, Another a reason that, to scrap drug laws. And in the war on
1: drugs. Yeah. But I mean, you know why they're I mean well, I mean personally I think why they're not scrapping them is because they make more money keeping it illegal. It's an industry. If you yeah, totally. All the prison service, the judiciary, everything, the pharmaceuticals that they
0: need to take people off those drugs, everything. Then you've got the Bush and Clinton crime families bringing it in. But that's another yeah. story. <laughs> All right, so you're you're um you've got your cellmates, Dan. You're the only English guy in this Interpol yep. facility. Yep. So when you're the only English guy then, and there's a bunch of people from other countries, how do you fit in with them
1: pretty easily actually it was yeah it was it was uh, yeah, we quickly made friends with the with the uh the the Arabs should we say could you entertain yourselves cards, chess anything like that um we didn't really have anything in the Interpol sales, so not even food <laughs> yeah uh you had to get your families to bring the food in, so luckily, oh well, no food, yeah, so we some of the Arabs were helping me to bring food in. You know, you'd have to pay for your own food,
0: yeah, uh, and drinks. So it was pretty harsh. Um, How did you access money then from the to get food brought in? Um,
1: we were allowed a certain amount of money through the embassy. Oh, so okay. I think the embassy. Yeah, they brought cash in. Yeah. I mean they they didn't want much to do with me because they'd been told, you know, this guy's fucking. Sorry, language. It's okay, you can swear like, after five minutes. He's okay. First five minutes. He's, you know, X, Y, and Z criminal from England, and uh, basically don't help him. They were yeah. actually told that. They, they The woman came in and said that she, she'd she never, in all her time at, at the embassy, been told not to help a prisoner. Oh my God. And she'd been directly told not to talk to me, don't help him. You know, basically make your life shit. So you've got
0: nothing <laughs> coming in an Ecuadorian prison. I mean, of... they,
1: they, they, they she did help
0: me, thankfully. Yeah. So this is the cops again, just trying to sweat you and get you killed. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, well, I, I definitely believe they did try and get me killed out there. After reading your book, I believe that as well. Yeah. So, um, five weeks, did you say in the yeah, whole thing? Yeah. Uh, At had, had the rest of the prisoners in there, told you where you were going to go next and what that was going to be yeah, like. Yeah. So there's all the what were those stories know, like because
1: I'd already been in prison in England, I wasn't particularly worried to, to some extent. But yeah. I mean, you know, I knew a uh, South American prison's a bit different. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, I kind of view prison wherever you are as prison. It's prison, isn't it? You're behind the bars, walls, you know, people with guns trying to shoot you if you get out. <laughs> so, yeah. It's all pretty much the same. And, um, you know, the, I'm, uh, a couple of guys in there, locals, were going, oh, it's like hell in there, El Infierno, hence mm-hmm. you know, the title of the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's you're going to be ripped to pieces, all those of, you know, normal stories. I mean, you hear them in Britain. When you're waiting to go into prison, there people will be like, "Oh, you know," particularly if they think you look fresh or something. Mm. They're just trying trying to get into your head. Yeah. I remember I had a fight at the Interpol. Some uh, guy there thought he tried his luck because you know saw me as foreign, and yeah, I could,
0: could you feel the tension building between you and him, or was it just a random? No, quick, he just he just attack? came
1: he just came in one night, and tried it yeah. on, and I'd uh, greeted by the friends. I just faced it. Slow down. When you say he tried it, oh, on, what did he do? Well, he just came in and started trying to, you know, just, just... I can't remember exactly what. I think he was trying to get money off me or something. I didn't really understand so at the time. So sweating you,
0: shaking you down.
1: And I just gripped him by the throat and pushed yeah. him up
0: against the wall and smacked him in the
1: face. And I really...
0: That ended that? Yeah. 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 And then people left me alone. Yeah. A bit. So you got some respect from doing that. You I mean, this sh- you is only ha- an you I mean, heart. there's
1: not many people. There's only like 20, 30 people.
0: All right. So you've got this chapter in your book now called Into Hell. Can you, right. t- can you take us into hell, the people watching this who are not that's familiar with really, the story? Which
1: one's there? That's when I get trapped Because to... I can't even remember the chance it's so All right, so where <laughs> you,
0: wherever you're going to go after Interpol, is that... that yeah, that was that, it. That was that, it into that's the, the hell, right? The next one? Yeah, yeah. Sl- can you just slowly take us into hell? So, like, the people watching this... They want to, you know, hear you going in, the prisoners looking at you, the sounds, the smells. Yes. Yeah, so, everything you can think of to describe. Okay.
1: So, the the first place that we get taken to is like a, a remand center, their version of a, a remand center. Yeah. Uh, prior to going into the main prison. And uh, it was like a three story building. So, we get driven through Quito, up through the old town to uh, this. Uh, What do I call it? Um, I forgot what I was saying. (laughs) What's it it called? A remand centre. Remand (laughs) centre. A centre for unsentenced
0: prisoners. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you get taken to this remand centre, which is right next to the main prison. And it's like a three story building. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, the bottom uh, floor of it is just open, basically, with uh, raw iron bars. And the people in there obviously like the worst of the worst and the prison guard was joking going oh we're going to put you in there and there's people in there with knives with machetes going like this arms coming out through the bars trying to grab you and i "I was like like going in there are they like a ragtag bunch yeah real bunch? ragtag like street criminals just murders and just, i mean like pirates of the caribbean scenario you know it's just all scary scary so luckily, we got taken up to the third floor, <laughs> which is like traffickers, you know people with money, blah blah blah. Money yeah. talks in this country. Yeah. And so, going into the 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 you know with this group of Arabs because we got transferred at the same time. My girlfriend has obviously gone to the women's prison, so we've been split up, which is quite you know traumatic Seeing so her go because no one was going to see her again and not knowing what she was going to be going into herself. And particularly because she hadn't been into prison. I knew this was her first experience of prison. I had no idea what the fuck was going on. Mm. You know, I, that, that was what was worrying me more than anything. It was what was happening to her, really. Yeah. Uh, and what I could do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whilst in Interpol, I'd actually taken on a lawyer that the uh, the Arabs were using. Yeah. Because the embassy had brought in their list of lawyers, mm-hmm. and I'd picked one out, and these guys had come in all dressed in fancy suits, expensive rings, and asked me for a retainer of like three hundred thousand dollars or oh. something, and we can get you four years, and it will cost you half a million dollars. I was like, half you mad? I can get a better, a lesser sentence in an English prison for, <laughs> for no money." Well, you know, you know <laughs> what I'm saying. Isn't it? So anyway, I take on this this lawyer that they put me in touch with. Uh, who seemed pretty good, local woman. So she not only does she help with the case, but she also smooths things out our transition into the prison. So she goes along to the prison guards and you know pays a few bribes, and we spend about a week in the romance centre, and then gets taken straight into the into the main prison, into the the wing for foreigners. Uh, this is in Quito, where they had a wing sort of. Pretty much dedicated just for foreigners, which was not too bad actually. Um, the prison was laid out like a Victorian prison in England, uh, very similar to the one that I was in in Gloucester, with a center and the wings coming out, radiating out like the spokes of a wheel, uh, bicycle wheel. And there was the foreigners' wing, a uh, wing mainly for Ecuadorians, and a wing for Colombians and Ecuadorians. Uh, which they oversaw their own wings, and we oversaw ours, kind of. So, uh, yeah, first day there was okay. Get brought in, uh, meet a few of the English guys in there pretty quickly, guy from Manchester, Lee. Uh, uh, That's right, but yeah, we go on to, we didn't go into the foreigners' wing first, well, we went into another wing first, where I met Lee, and spent a couple of nights there not very long like a, a holding cell probably about not not even as big as this studio about 40 of us in there having to take it in shifts to sleep because oh. there was no floor <laughs> oh. room so uh having gone through that yeah we get taken into this this wing for foreigners um and where did i oh yeah i ended up in a, a cell with a french and german guy mm. uh quickly learned that i can buy my own cell but um <laughs> what was the cell cost two grand two thousand pounds more or less give or yeah. take depending on the condition and what was in it uh you could have tvs in there dvd player fridge whatever you want
0: did, uh, satellite did someone, tv did someone take you on a tour of the available cells
1: <laughs> kind of yeah i mean at that time the prison was overcrowded so there weren't any really so you had to sort of wait for one to come up you'd have like a little contract owner of the cell uh, and when the cell was sold or transferred, you'd have to go to the the like uh, the informal boss of the wing, the caporal, and say, "Look, I uh, want to buy this cell." He'd witness
0: it. You
1: know, it was like a little contract. Yeah, <laughs> funny retail
0: underground economy. <laughs> yeah, property so, empire. So the boss then was he part of a gang? He was
1: one of the Arabs. Actually, he was the Syrian, uh, Syrian guy. Uh, I don't know if, actually. Uh, when I first went in, it was an Egyptian, but quickly became this Syrian. They were all connected anyway. So again, that was helpful because I was friends with his friend. Mm. Um, so yeah, 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 the arrival into
0: Equ- uh, into Kita wasn't too bad, to be honest. wasn't too bad so far. So you get your cell, then you're in the foreign wing. Are the locals coming into the foreign wing? Are they interacting with you? Yeah,
1: a little bit, uh, not massively. Um, after a few months, I've become quite friendly with a little, uh, group of Colombians. Uh, met this American guy called Aaron. If you see this, uh, who introduced me to his, his, uh, little group of Colombian guys who I'm still very friendly with to this day. Mm. Spoke to one of them yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of had our back, so to speak. Yeah. they had a couple of weapons, handguns,
0: whatnot. So. So the prisoners had weapons, handguns. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah, machetes I mean everyone had knives, machetes uh, Did that was you feel just the need to arm yourself? After a while yeah I mean I, I not always carried a knife but I always had a knife fairly handy yeah. um, I did have a handgun uh, later on when I was there because we ended up sort of running a few things on the wing Yeah, just to generate money really and not cut into the money that we had saved back in Britain or mm-hmm. I had saved back in Britain what is the gang structure in the locals? um Like I say, the Ecuadorians tended to stick to their wing, the Colombians mm. to their wing, and us to our wing. So I formed a little uh European gang. I called Eurobanda as <laughs> <It's> a joke, because <laughs> like the, the Spanish word for gang is band, bander. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah, band. Um, so I got a couple of russians uh, some english guys a whole bunch of us and just was about 20 or 30 of us strong yeah. and then these colombians as backup mm-hmm. so we started bringing in our own coke selling coke on the wing to the foreigners um i ended up buying four three or four cells renting some of the cells out uh just, yeah, doing whatever business I could. <laughs>
0: so you're a landlord and you're a cocaine kingpin <laughs> and you've got weapons and you've got an army. Did you have enforcers?
1: Yeah, as well. They were the Colombians as well. Yeah. Uh, any drug debts we'd send the Columbians. <laughs>
0: really? <laughs> so, uh, were well, the Russians quite tough?
1: Yeah, generally, yeah. I, I, I had one of them living with me, uh, Vladimir, who's uh, in Israel now. So shout out to Vladimir if you, if you see this. Uh, yeah, and Boris as well
0: good old Russian names <laughs> <laughs> alright so so far everything's going smoothly Yeah, you got your little business you're making some money on the side is it the coke Um the guards bring that in do you have to pay them off uh, it was a bit different there because the yeah I mean the
1: guards I mean having spent time in, in an English prison where it's the guards you don't talk to them it's them and us going into a prison in South America where it's the opposite the guards are almost part of the whole melee yeah you know so they're all getting paid, all getting bribed. I mean, on a Sunday, which was like the collection day, all debts had to be sort of paid up. You know, you'd pay your debt at the shop yeah. or at a restaurant because there were shops and restaurants in there. Uh, so they'd all come around collecting their little their little, uh, chithy or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, the guards would do the same. So on a Sunday, I'd have a row of guards outside myself, all collecting like $5, $2, $3, depending on what for. You know, you'd have to pay them off to turn a blind eye to the fact you had a phone, the fact you had a gun, you were dealing coke,
0: (laughs) stuff like that. Um, Yeah, just keep them sweet, really. So this is the real world. America pays these countries billions every year to fight the war on drugs. And they end up flying around in the helicopters, showing off to the girlfriends, these politicians and these police chiefs. And the guards and the police are the ones... Running the drugs at the ground level—yeah, absolute madness. All right, so Sea Wing Garcia Moreno Prison—that's where we're at now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, the next chapter headline is then just another day in paradise and whiskey galore. You got some stories from those chapters.
1: That was probably when we were because yeah, we were. (laughs) That's probably when we were bringing the alcohol as well. Yeah. Uh, every every other week. Vis- vis- visits were all day Wednesday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. So you could have your family, your girlfriend, wife, friends, whoever in, into the wing, into your cell. Uh, so you think that's half, nearly half the time you're in prison, you've got your family in there. Could you have your actual girlfriend from the other side of
0: the women's prison moved into yours? Uh, no,
1: because mm, that, that was... Uh, there was, they they did do a thing like that, but I, I managed to get about it before that became a mm. question. But um, I think once a month you could, they used to bring the female prisoners to see their boyfriends or husbands into the men's prison. Yeah, And they could come into your cell, you know, spend the day in the cell with you having sex and all the rest of it, yeah, yeah. usual stuff. But um, they did a thing. Where every other week on a Saturday you could have any female stay in your cell overnight, mm-hmm. so they you know like a conjugal visit. Wow! Uh, so you would kick out your cellmates, and they would sleep in the gym, mm-hmm. and you'd have a
0: party in oh, a party in your in your cell basically overnight. Did they just do, do that out of respect because you had a woman in, or did you have to kick them down something? Your cellmates to go and sleep in the gym?
1: Oh no, no, because no. I mean, if you owned the cell, you could do what you wanted, basically. because oh, you're the owner. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. You know, if you you, you really to have those privileges, you could either rent a cell, which yeah. is why I started buying cells to rent out for these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or you you'd buy you know buy your own.
0: Yeah. All right, so we've got so the whiskey thing didn't pan out.
1: Uh, no, I mean we were making money bringing whiskey in as well. Okay. I mean, I think that's referring to to those 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 party days because everyone would just have a massive party. Yeah. Whoever was kicked out of the cell would just they just all go and get completely shit faced and drunk, loads of coke, end up fighting.
0: <laughs> so the final heading then before your sentence is Nikki. Yeah. What's that, that chapter about? Can you that, talk that's about that? my girlfriend. That was uh, that's not a real name. Okay. But, um, Let's stick with the fake name. Yeah. Uh, So she's on remand. She must be going through all kinds of mental processes. Where is she at mentally before you're sentencing? I mean, uh, because I got her released before I get sentenced. Okay, tell us
1: about that. Yeah. So basically, I'm trying to bribe people left, right and center, judges, police, whoever I can. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Mainly to get her out, get her, you know, out of Ecuador. Yeah. Um, So I managed to do that. I ended up having to take the fall, basically, in order to get her released mm-hmm. and paid Paid quite a substantial amount of money to the judges to make sure it happened. Can you say how much that was? 25 grand. Okay. So, got her out. And she came to see me and I said, look, whatever you do, do not go back to Britain because the British police are going to arrest you. Yeah. I know you're not involved, but they don't care. They're just going to do whatever they can to make it. First, my life hell, and second, your mm. life really fucking hell. Uh, so, yeah, I'd arranged for an apartment for her in Barcelona, and I said, "Look, you can go to Barcelona. My friends have got an apartment set up there for you. Mm. Bring your daughter over from England because she had a, a teenage daughter at that time. Mm-hmm. Bring a bring her over from England. Just stay in Spain and watch what happens with the case from a distance. At least yeah. you're free. You can do what you want. Well, and bad. if it goes." Pete Tong, pear-shaped, you don't have to go back well, hopefully you know, and you won't be going to prison but she went back to England and after a few months got arrested in England and um, I, by that point had been sentenced to 12 years they requested 25 years, basically the British police contacted the Ecuadorians came over a couple of times uh, threatened to extradite me back to Britain. Um said if I got less than ten years or served less than six, that I would first of all complete the sentence there and then be re-sentenced when I was returned to Britain to twenty five twenty to twenty five in Britain. That's what they were gonna start it at. Which is one thing that worried me all the way through the through the entire time in prison because I because I got sentenced to twelve and that was for 7.8 kilograms of cocaine that they found in Ecuador, but not for the 85 kilograms in Britain and 4 million quid or whatever it was. I didn't know whether or not when I got back to Britain, however I ended up back here, whether or not I was going to get resentenced to 20 to 25 years. Right up until the day that I walked out of Wandsworth, I thought I was going to get get arrested.
0: Oh man, that is the worst. So I
1: went through ten years of absolute torment and fear thinking oh, I'm gonna get stuffed when I walk out. The worst and part not at one point did they say, No, we'll we we'll accept the time that you've done. You know, we can see how hard it's been, nothing like that. At no point did they say, yeah, fair's fair.
0: The worst part of being a prisoner is on remand. I was on twenty six months and just the uncertainty was like every, mm, month, every yeah. month, everyone, everyone getting sentenced to nine and a half years is one of the happiest days of my life because I knew when I was going to get out. But then to have that life sentence hanging over you for 10 years. yeah. And also in
1: Ecuador, Uh, the problem is even though I was sentenced to 12, that didn't mean I was going to get out necessarily after 12 or uh, even 10 or even whatever. Because, I mean, I know people there at the moment in prison who have gone beyond the amount of time they're supposed to be in prison. And because they don't have money to get out, they haven't been able to pay the lawyers, pay the judge to get form signed to get out so they're still in prison
0: so for 26 months my mind was just playing tricks on me thinking you know you're facing a big sentence you might never get out yeah for 10 years to have that how did you adjust mentally were you able to start blocking it out or did it just keep coming back that was always there it was always there Uh, going away um i mean Part
1: of me, every year, I remember I was ringing my family, girlfriend, who, you know, whoever I was with at that time. Uh, But mainly family, I'd be ringing them up saying, look, I'm going to be out in six months or a year, which I thought I was going to be. Because I was paying all these bribes off and all the rest of it. And I, you know, it just wasn't happening. And every time I got near to getting out, something would go wrong. The police would come over. They'd make sure I didn't get out, block it. And after five years or five and a half years um i applied for this new system that they just started then this like 50 percent remission thing mm. like like in england you know you do half your sentence if if the sentence is under 10 years you do half yeah so it was a similar sort of system out there for good behavior mm. the problem was because the system had only just started then there was no record of good behavior or (laughs) having done courses because there weren't any courses. So there wasn't any evidence uh, to Mm. support it. So when the file went in, my name must have been flagged up because of having tried to escape out of keto. And they gave me 9% remission on a 12 year sentence, which meant in total that I had to do 11 years out of a 12 year sentence
0: they just really had it in for you
1: and so at five and a half years i thought oh great i'm going to be out in a few months do half my sentence i'm out Woo-hoo. Mm. when that news came through my mother in the meantime had died oh, just at, the, at this time and i was in some ways i was glad that she had because i think when i had to phone her up and tell her that no i'm not coming down but i've got to do another five or six years yeah. that would have killed her
2: yeah yeah
1: that year was really bad actually. Found my best mate hanging in a cell
0: just down from me. All right. This is a little bit further up. S- s- slow down a bit then. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm curious about the logistics of bribing a judge to let someone out the country. So he said it was 25 grand. What is to stop the judge from saying, all right, I've got your 25 grand, something's happened, send me another 25? That was what started happening. Oh, did yeah. It?
1: Yeah. Not so much with my girlfriend because that was kind of cut and dry. Yeah. But. When it came to me, I think because of the amount of pressure from the British police and the and the British government, maybe yeah. the judges were a bit standoffish and a bit worried about doing anything because mm-hmm. they knew that if I suddenly got a sentence of less than 10 years or whatever, this alarm bells are going to start going off. Yeah. And I remember having to say to my lawyer, tell the judge, please don't sentence me to less than 10 years, yeah. even though I'm paying all this money. I can't have a sentence less than ten years because if I do, I am going to get really shafted.
0: Mm -hmm. How much did the judge siphon off you?
1: In total, I spent over one hundred with the twenty-five grand getting Nikki out. uh, I spent over one hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds, not dollars, and it was like two to one at that point.
0: So, going to your sentencing hearing, then, did you have a range of expectations that could come down?
1: No, I mean, we by that point we
0: knew pretty much I was going to get twelve. It was pretty much. It was so, so twelve with a certain percent and your back time. How much would you actually have to serve? Back time how Do you mean? So like you've been on sentence? Do you get credit for that? Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's a, yeah, remand time. I mean, it was just a, it was just one day, one day out there, basically. Yeah. Um, at the time I got sentenced, like I say, none of the there was no remission. Okay. So. It was all being talked about mm-hmm. and it did come in afterwards, but at that time, I mean when they asked for me to be sentenced to twenty-five years, yeah. I was actually if I had been sentenced to twenty-five years and gone through the system as it was, I would have done twenty-three years out there. Yeah. Jesus.
0: <laughs> all right. Describe your sentencing hearing then. So
1: yeah, get taken on on a on a prison prison transport coach bus thing mm-hmm. uh, with a load of other people to like a uh, uh, like a I suppose five or six story building in the center of Quito which was the courts It's really weird because it was like a you know like in the British courtroom it's all sort of one level isn't it you don't really have them high rises and I think the courtroom was on the third or fourth floor so you go up in the lift yeah. <laughs> it's really weird and uh very informal bit like this, sat at a table, three judges, and uh, you know, I'm sat that side. And
0: you're speaking Spanish by this point,
1: a little bit, not much. Had a translator there from the embassy, which who I had to pay for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, just run through all the, I mean, it's pretty quick, just in and out. You know, I tried to say that, you know, there was a British, uh, well, a Colombian informant involved. Named him in court, said it was all down to him, it was his fault, you know. Tried to put the blame back on him. Basically, I did that because I wanted to help the people back in England who hadn't been sentenced yet. I wanted to out the informant and give them a way out, you know, because as far as I'm concerned, the end of world rule is that if you play, you know, if you put it on an informant, that's not being aggressive. That's the rule that we stick by.
0: Good karma to save those other people. Yeah. So just to give people an idea, then you, you you know you're throwing these tens of thousands around to try and grease the system. How poor were people in that country at that point in time? Like, what was the average income and things like that?
1: Say, for example, a doctor would have been on a thousand dollars a month. Thousand dollars a month. Doctors' wages. Well,
0: prison 1, 000, guard. Is that a thousand American dollars? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Amer- yeah. yeah Ecuador was Americanized, uh, dollarized yeah. system. So prison guard would be on about four four hundred dollars a month. Four or five hundred dollars a month, so you can see why they're open to bribery. There's a lot of poverty. I mean, we could get the coke, was uh, like four or five dollars a gram. Mm -hmm. You know, bringing an ounce, I could work it out. Uh, what's that five? Uh, yeah, mass fading, (laughs) (laughs) anyway. It's cheap, (laughs) so you know, you could pay a prison guard to bring it in pay him $100, $200, they bring
0: you in a gun for $300. Good grief. Handgun, something like that. Yeah, wow. Well, so the good cops watching this then, that are like enforcing these drug laws, I hope it's making some of your question. Like, the the, the black market just gets bigger every year, the violence gets bigger every year, and the un, unintended consequences, you know, your girlfriend's in there and all this other stuff, and just wreaks havoc everywhere all over the world. Okay, so... You're leaving the court now, how do you feel?
1: Um uh, kind of, well, kinda of like you, kind of relieved that, yeah. yeah, you know, all that weight's over. At least I know what I've got now. Um the plan was then to let things calm down a bit so there wasn't so much attention around me from the British police and the media and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Let that all chill out. And then come back after a year or six six months or a year, make an appeal, pay pay and get the sentence brought down from twelve to either eight or six. Yeah. And not hopefully let the british police know about this Mm -hmm. you know because it was on appeal yeah and then do half and get out after three Mm -hmm. something like that anyway yeah but no none of that ever ever happened none of it just didn't happen Mm. didn't transpire so i then start trying to think of ways other ways to get out yeah i escape um i mean it's always on your mind anyway it is though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, who likes to be locked up in in in, in a prison where you, all your freedoms are taken away and you're at risk of ending up dead every day? You know, I mean, the violence in there was so commonplace. So your stomach. <laughs> can you start? Can you start to describe some of the things you <coughs> saw? In incidences of violence. Yeah, I mean, one of the worst that I saw in Kita was when they killed an informant a guy called Ray. Uh, they brought in what they call a uh, comi muerto, which it means in, it's in Spanish, uh, translated into English, means "eat the dead." Comi muerto, and they would be life sentence prisoners who were in for murder or you know just horrible shit. And they would draft them in. They would pay the guards to bring one of them in, give them a gun, say just point them and say, "Kill him or kill them or whoever," and that'd be their job. They'd kill them, then they'd get taken back out to the wing that they were on originally.
0: Did you just see the aftermath of that or did you witness people getting executed? So
1: on this day, it was a visit day. I think it was either Saturday or Sunday and there were families in there, kids running around, women, you know, people's parents, stuff like that. And my Russian mate Vladimir came running up to my cell and said, God, you've got to come and see this. They're killing that informant Ray on on, uh, D-Wing, the Colombian wing. So I go over there get there and there's this group of people and you can see the blood sign spread out all over the ground because it's on the ground floor. And this guy's just getting butchered. This 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 uh life sentence prisoner is just, you know, just repeatedly stabbing him. The guy's crumpled up on the floor and he's not dying. And he's, you know, he's trying to talk and he's trying to call for help. And no one's helping him. The guy's just standing back, letting it happen because they've been paid off. And it took the guy half an hour to die. The guy doing the killing stopped halfway through Went, sat in his cell, smoked some crack, got nice and high, came back out and carried on again.
0: Holy shit!
1: Yeah, and his kids running through the blood and women and just, people just stood up. It was just so fucked up that no one is helping him and you you think that could be you. That was the scariest thing in the prison was the fact that you had nowhere to turn to. That's why I got this little group of foreigners together as some sort of backup. Because generally, the foreigners out there got used to get... Extorted or picked upon because generally they didn't have any backup or they didn't have anyone around them. So I formed this pretty tight group with the Colombians
0: so that you know people wouldn't fuck with us. <coughs> how Sorry, do you de- How how do you deal with that psychologically? Seeing something so hardcore. Um,
1: I mean, that wasn't the first time that I'd seen pretty full on violence. I mean, I, I was it
0: was, it, was, was it all in the well. prison? All in the prison? You mean?
1: Uh, no. I mean you know I've seen stuff outside the prison as well, yeah, yeah, um but that was pretty extreme, mm-hmm. and it was just the fact that knowing that if you got into a problem in there, there was nowhere to run to, no one to go to, no one to talk to. luckily, like i said we we got this well, i we got this group of people together, so that we had some sort of backup, but you couldn't go to the guards, you couldn't go to the authorities because they would just throw you back to the to the lions, basically.
0: So no matter what kind of back you have and what <clears throat> kind of group you form there's always people who want to try and test you. Yeah. Did you get any any situations?
1: Um in Quito not um
0: Did you move prison after you sentence sentenced then or you stayed in No no one? no no. I mean I would
1: have stayed in Quito the entire time if I hadn't have tried to escape from the place. Yeah. So um, so
0: run us run us through the escape attempt first.
1: Yeah, so we are we're hatching up all these different ways of trying to escape out of the place and there'd been quite a few successful escapes out of there via tunnels uh, the prison was on the slopes of a of a volcano the Pinchincha volcano uh, in the old town of Quito so underneath the prison was pretty you know easy to dig out yeah. and there was a rabbit warren of tunnels down there already mm. it used to be a running joke that if you opened up one tunnel you'd probably come across three others anyway <laughs> half finished <laughs> or half dug. <laughs> So, um, we it, it was basically in conjunction with the Colombians. We decided to buy a cell on B Wing, the Ecuadorian's wing, because the, say this is the wing, the outside wall ran along here. There was a big exercise yard here, and we bought a cell right at the end next to the outer wall. Yeah. So the plan was to dig under the, the exercise yard, which was tarmac follow the line of the wall underneath underneath the exterior wall and then pop up here. Uh, basically it was this was mountains here, right yeah. near to the prison. And 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 go. So we started digging the tunnel and unfortunately someone spoke, word got out, mm-hmm. and I think the guards had clicked that I was trying to escape by that point anyway. Mm-hmm. We also talked about doing a helicopter lift off the off the roof. Cause these these Colombians were part of FARC.
2: Yeah.
0: Do you want so, to explain to people who fuck is, the guerrillas? Uh,
1: the guerrillas, Colombian guerrillas uh, fighting for freedom in Colombia, I suppose. And a lot of cocaine. <laughs> yeah,
0: left versus right in Colombia. Yeah. They all ended up um, fin- getting financed through cocaine because of drug laws.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So the plan with them was to get some people around. Uh, well, there were two plans. One was a helicopter lift, which was too expensive. And the second was to blow this the wall of this exercise yard with an RPG Ooh, like from, from, that from outside yeah, with, <laughs> with covering fire to take out the gun turrets here <laughs> and here. <sighs> Yeah, I like the sound of that one as well. Yeah. That was going to be a mass escape. And yeah. uh, that was the one that, because when I got transferred, the guard said, oh, you, you've been blamed for Fuga Massiva or attempted Fuga Massiva, which is like massive escape mm-hmm. of something like 30 people. I was wow. like, really? Know who that was. (laughs) (laughs) So get pretty much ghosted out of out of uh Quito down to Guayaquil and this prison in Guayaquil, the pet what's it called? The uh penitentiary littoral de Guayaquil. Okay. This huge monster of a prison, eight thousand prisoners, twenty-six wings, just as beer moth of a prison uh in this port city um quite a kill. renowned has been completely gang controlled two major gangs at war with each other the cubanos at the time and the russo's uh the prison was pretty much evenly divided between the two of them there was a there was a border line which you couldn't cross if you did you're not coming back or if you do you're going to get interrogated by the gang could you
0: tell out. us a little bit about their gangs what how they they came about the history <clears throat>
1: I I think in in Ecuador, there's always been gangs, but generally how they start out there is it it seems to be that there there will be a feud between two families. Someone will get killed from one family by a member of the other, and then it starts escalating into tit-for-tat killings, and then it's contract killings, and then they start financing it with drug trafficking Mm -hmm. and organized crime, bank robberies, robbery, extortion, theft. And before you know it, you've got a bloody great gang, thousands of members, uh, you know, that are infiltrated, not only in the prison, but into the into the cities, and, you know, they're controlling huge swathes of the country.
0: Because I imagine they can, like, go to a guard's house and just kill the guard. So got- well, the
1: thing is, like, a lot of them are grown up in the same barriers, the same areas of the, as the guards. So, they've, you know, they've either been at school with them or they know their families. Yeah. So the guards don't, will not stand against them at all. I mean... Right now, the strongest gang in Ecuador is the Choneros, and I was actually in prison with their leader, mm. a guy called Jota Eli, or Raskina. Uh, he was on the same wing as me, and what him and his brother, who I became very friendly with, and went through a gunfight with them gun battle. Yeah, but the, yeah I'll tell you about that later.
0: <laughs> wow. All right, first day then at this new prison. <coughs>
1: Yeah, so I go on this long journey down through the Andes. Um was that beautiful good, that journey? It was nice to be out of the prison and it was yeah, it was quite nice because uh it you know, we we set off in the afternoon and it took a good I can't remember how many hours, but maybe twelve, fourteen hours. You know, stopped along the way and uh went right up into oh, sorry, right up into the Andes. Um yeah so that was my first experience of nighttime for for a few years by that point.
0: Did your relationships with the locals carry forward into your new prison or were you a yeah, stranger
1: yeah because because some of the main gang leaders <coughs> sorry <coughs> because some of the main gang leaders from Guayaquil had been transferred to Quito as punishment um I'd got to know a couple of them. They had then been returned to Guayaquil, so when I ended up being transferred there they were already back in in the prison there. And my friends in Quito phoned ahead and said, "Look, Pete's on the way down. Uh, you know, make sure he's looked after when he gets there." Yeah. So I was received by, uh, a, on I think it was the, the morning of the second day there, about fifty or there was at least fifty of them. Really? Gang members, gang members came out. The boss of the gang, all with handguns, all in brand new sports gear, handguns, phones, came out. Guards just let them walk straight out of the prison to yeah. where I was being held at the gate. Came and got me, oh, Gringo. Yeah, yeah, Gringo, <laughs> you're here. <Woo-hoo." laughs> here, take the phone. Talk to your friends in Quito. Just let them know you're all right. Uh, we're going to look after you. And I was like, they're either going to look after me, or are they going to really extort me? Yeah, because I wasn't quite sure what politics was going on because mm-hmm. because I had sort of taken over the, the the foreigners wing in Quito, and it was generating a lot of money. Money's always a contentious point in the prison because yeah. the, the gangs, or the people that want it. Will do all sorts of shit to try and take that away from you of course so i'd sort of fallen out with the arab the syrian that i mentioned earlier who why was, because i was taking over the wing i was controlling mm. the cocaine trade in there the alcohol stuff like that and of course him yeah. being muslim didn't like alcohol anyway <laughs> <laughs> and i and i painted a great big union jack on the back of my prison door so that was right in his face and he just didn't like me so there was all these rumors that he had been responsible for me being transferred out of there and uh, also i was hearing rumors it was because of me trying to escape and the british police and you know all sorts of stories floating around i didn't know quite what was true Mm. and also being a bit worried that i'm about to get really heavily extorted or possibly just disappeared in this prison and killed yeah Uh, so even
0: though you had a good reception it's in the back of your mind that this could be an illusion
1: yeah so I get taken into this huge, just prison. I mean, the, the main corridor that separated the wings mm. ran down. It was a long corridor, a mile, either a kilometer or a mile long, this corridor was, yeah. and the wings coming off it like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't see from one end to the other. They, the police used to ride up and down it on motorbikes with machine guns on. Jesus. <clears throat> so it's insane. So I get taken in, and we were, actually went into about the second wing in, and then on the left and that became home
0: what was the living quarters like for you?
1: Uh, I get put in a cell straight away with one of the main well he was the main uh, he uh, he controlled the drugs for the gang Mm -hmm. in the whole prison so he had rucksacks full of drugs in the cell with us (laughs) you could smell it from outside the cell (laughs) uh, that was a a little bit nerve wracking but also kind of reassuring because I knew I was pretty safe (laughs) But also nerve wracking because if the police came in to do a search, it was like, well, what's the gringo doing in the cell with all the drugs? Yeah. <laughs> and he's already in loads of drugs anyway. Did they something. have a gun in there as well? Yeah, they uh, yeah. I mean all the gang all the gang members had guns. Yeah. So spent a few months living with him. It was pretty cool. What was he like interacting with? He was a pretty chill that guy. He didn't you know, they were pretty strict about it. uh their members didn't take the drugs. They, you know, might smoke weed, but that was it. They didn't want to do Coke or They didn't have crack at that time. It was this stuff called bassy, which is uh, like a derivative. Or heroin either. That was like a big no-no, really frowned upon in there. So, yeah, it was the main drugs that they sold at that time were cocaine, weed, and this polvo bassy stuff.
0: What's your relationship like with your girlfriend at this point?
1: She's now back in England. I mean, this is... This is after. So she went back to England, got arrested. Uh, she's now in prison at this point. She's she in got prison. sentenced to 13 years. They ended up sentencing her to 13 years. Fabricated evidence against her. Said that she'd been <sighs> bringing drugs in for me, which she hadn't ever. Is that
0: because she she wouldn't cooperate? They, yeah, she they, was,
1: she went not guilty.
0: She went not guilty, and she refused to cooperate. Yeah. So she's got balls, then hasn't she?
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, they they really, like, yeah, they completely <sighs> stitched her up.
0: Could you communicate with her by mail? No, no. She, I mean, can...
1: she, she cut me off as well. Oh, I mean, did she? Oh, she I, not... I, I, I contacted her before before she got remanded or sentenced. And I said, look, put your legal team in contact with me. I mean, they must have been shit. Yeah. To have allowed us to get sentenced to 13 years in prison and to allow the British police to introduce evidence that was clearly fabricated into the case is just like, how did that
0: happen? She was on the conveyor belt for the legal vampires. That's yeah. just another shakedown on the taxpayers, all that money, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You know yeah. that. Very sad. So you're going in, you're single, you're living with the gang boss, his <laughs> cell's piled up with drugs and weapons, Yeah. and you're getting along with this guy. All right.
1: They, they, he, yeah, he was the boss of the drugs, so they, they, not the main boss. Not the main boss. Each wing had a boss. Uh He happened to be the main boss for the drugs. Yeah. Uh, But then there were other bosses for other things like extortion and prostitution. I mean, everything. Yeah. I mean, they they taxed the bottles of Coca-Cola coming into the prison. Mm -hmm. They put 10 cents on each bottle. I mean, they were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a Mm. week just on things like that. Wow. Massive. I mean, 8,000 people in the prison. Yeah. That's prisoners, let alone when all the visits come in at the weekend. Yeah. I mean, that tripled in size. So does that
0: money then end up on the streets, going to the, uh, the gang infrastructure, yeah, building yeah, up, buying yeah, weapons and stuff, yeah. bribes. All right, so you're in this prison now. You're single. Things are going okay in that cell. What were the first problems you encountered? Um. Uh, I started falling out a little bit
1: with the boss uh, of that wing because yeah. he was a bit of a dick or Leia, He's dead now as well. <laughs> it was, so, that, was that a natural death? No, he got killed, shot.
0: Is that later on in your story?
1: Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that, actually, because he got released and shot, like, the second day out of the prison. Oh, wow. Because he just pissed so many people off and and talked to that many people in the prison. He was just a little shit. Um, So, to appease him, I I decided to buy a cell, and I wanted to buy a cell anyway. Yeah. But down in Guayaquil, it was a little bit different. Whereas in Quito, if you bought a cell, you you would retain it and you could sell it Mm -hmm. there when you when it came time to leave it reverted back to the gang the gang sold the cells i see so i bought a cell for like a grand and a half which is pretty much empty yeah uh didn't need much stuff just kicked it out with some furniture, and tv and mm-hmm. aircon unit and whatnot um
0: uh yeah so that kind of shut him up so that money's yeah. gone you're not going to get that cell yeah, back exactly the previous cell then did you get your money back for that one no, lost all that money in keto
1: because I own four cells. Lost in the transfer, lost oh. about, again, about 20 grand, 25 no. grand. Because I, do you need to
0: stop? Sorry, keep going. We've got three cameras, but oh, one, right, just yeah. went da- uh, one just went
1: down. Yeah, lost that money because I basically uh, tried to get an English guy to sell the cells for me up there. Yeah. He sold them, used the money to get himself out of prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Raymond <laughs> if you're listening hopefully not I think he's dead now but or <laughs> well, sneak yeah from London as well yeah it's all shit <laughs> oh. um so yeah couldn't really do any business in the prison in Guayaquil because it was all controlled by the gang and they wouldn't allow foreigners to do anything so you can't get your hustle on no I did eventually uh, it just took a little bit longer <laughs> yeah um the cell that you moved into, what was that like? Um, it's fairly basic. I mean, you didn't really need much there because it, it was a lot warmer than keto. So, you know, uh, I was living on my own. Paid the gang, said, look, I want to live on my own. Don't want anyone living with me. It's much better. No hassle. Do what you want then. Um, quite a bit bigger than the ones in keto. There was a big window. I think I, I think the cells were probably built for like four people, probably originally. Uh, but there was a big open window, just raw iron bars uh looking out onto an exercise yard. Uh built a mezzanine level so like had a bed at a mezzanine level at the dining area downstairs. <laughs> mm. Uh T V, whatnot, stuff like that. How are you getting your food in? There, um basically got a hold i think one of the other prisoners introduced me to a woman there who worked for a church. And she would she would bring in shopping for you, money. So I'd have money transferred to her. Her name was Mercedes. So I still have very good friends with her. Uh so yeah, you have your Western Union transfer to her, tell her what you wanted in the way of shopping. She'd bring in four or five bags of shopping every week. Wow. Did roma- I went pretty well?
0: Did the romance blossom with her or did <coughs> you take advantage? Oh no, no, no. She was like a older person, like a I second see. mother to me. Did you take advantage of the conjugal visit system? Um
1: in Guayaquil, it wasn't really, it was a bit different to Quito. They didn't have mm. that thing where you, yeah. where your girlfriend could stay over every night, uh, uh, every other week, sorry, yeah. on a Saturday. Um, Cut hair flowing in front of my face. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, a girl from Manchester that I've met in Quito and become very friendly with, she came back to Ecuador. I can't remember why, I think she was in the Caribbean, but flew down to Ecuador to see me anyway and stayed uh for a few nights in the prison with me which is really cool
0: that is absolutely cool there's two things people look forward to the most in prison two, <laughs> two of the things are visits and mail it's like gold so if you've got people out there in prison around the world at least drop them a letter yeah. it's the highlight of the day isn't it what, yeah, yeah. what was how did they do mail call out there there was no mail
1: call <laughs> <laughs> so, we didn't have that option either. Really? I mean, you could have letters sent, but they would have to go via the embassy. Yeah. And by that point, the embassy were only coming in once every six months. Okay. So it, yeah, mail was a. The prison had no mail
0: system. So if the embassy bring it in, is it protected under the umbrella of legal mail then? Perhaps diplomatic mail.
1: Mm, I think they. Mm, I think they did use to open it, if I can remember correctly.
0: The embassy opened it, or the prison? Yeah, the embassy, and then the prison. Okay, so there were the security checks.
1: I can't actually remember.
0: Yeah. Not sure. All right, so what challenges started to arise then in this new cell?
1: Um, uh, It was going kind of okay, and then this other gang, the Chorneros that I mentioned just now, this was their sort of uh, christening into the Ecuadorian prison system, I suppose. At that point, they weren't huge, but they uh, about fifteen of them came into the prison and into the wing that I was on, including their 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 boss and his brother, who I became very friendly with. Quite different to the people that were already running the prison, the gang that were running the prison at the time, the Cubanos were kind of more like street thugs and more street level crime, whereas the Choroneros, when they came in, they were more contract killing, slightly better educated easier to get on with and yeah I got with them quite well actually <laughs> um, but it created tension on the wing because the Cubaners thought that these guys were going to take over the prison which they were starting to very quickly actually because they were a lot heavier, a lot stronger so they hatched a plot to kill them brought in a, a group of guys, about 10 or 15 of them brought them into the wing, killers. And one night in October, about 9, 9.30 at night, I'm cooking some food in the cell with a German friend, another Peter. And um, we started to sense that something was wrong on the wing. We could see little groups of people like having hushed conversations and weird movements and not many people out on the wing. Bearing in mind the cell doors were open 24 hours a day there. Never locked out. Uh, unless you lock yourself in the cell. That yeah. is. So, I, um, the, uh, trying to work it out. One of the gang members from the Chorneros, who was living next door to the boss of that gang, asked me for a plate of food. I said, okay, no problem. Uh, when I got the plate, came back, to the star, you know, I'm cooking the food, get it ready, spaghetti bolognese. And I take it down to him. As I take it down to him, there's another group from the cabana was waiting at the entrance to the, to the wing you know, ready to kick off, and I, d- I wasn't really aware of all this so I knock on the guy's door and they use this as an excuse to start the gunfight, one of them comes up behind me and over my right shoulder shoots the guy that I've given the plate of food to straight in the face deafens me, and I'm just like, what the fuck and run back to myself, I mean the guys, you know yeah he's fucked Dead Run back to myself Dive through the door Slam the door shut The German guy proceeds to open the door again Sticks his head out To see what's going on I'm like be, what the fuck are you doing Pull him back in And that starts A two hour long Gun battle On the wing Between these two Rival gangs Two or three people End up dead Ten or eleven injured <sighs> Hand grenades going off And the police Hand grenades they, going off Yeah hand grenades An Uzi got discharged You know yeah, it was scary because by that point as well, I had ended up getting in with these the errors and they'd put me in charge of selling the coke for them. <sighs> this is probably about two years into me being there, so four years into the sentence. Um, so having that association with them has put has has put a target on my back a bit. So I'm expecting the door to come through any time now, and someone to shoot me as well because I'm literally living in front of the bosses. The, the, the cell in front of me is where the boss's brother's living, and I'm shouting to him whilst all this is going on, Carlos, are you all right? And he's shooting out the top of his door, and there's bullets bouncing off the ricocheting off the walls, and oh, it was horrific. When it was all over, the police came in, after two hours of all this mayhem. The police came in and started to, started again, torturing everybody got us all out all on the ground lying you know face down on the on the on the concrete floor just beating the hell out of everybody to find out what had gone on taking people in cells discharging m16s up against their heads drowning them electric them i mean it's just people screaming and crying all these tough gang leaders are so bit you know as soon as the police come in they're in tears crying getting being half killed
2: kill, so that goes on for another well. two
1: hours so this is four hours of a sheer terror now, <clears throat> and at the end, after the police move out, the the prison guards get us all together, and they'd ex- They'd basically executed one of the gang leaders in. Uh, the the exit way to the to to the exercise yard was the width of a cell, <laughs> so they got one of the gang leaders in there, and they'd execute him. They they, they shot him twice in the stomach, and during the during the gunfire, we could hear him crying out for his family and saying, please don't shoot me, I've got family, and, and the other guy's going, we've got your fucking leader, we're going to kill him now, and then, after half an hour, the guy pleading not to be killed, they just went, fuck this, Do you know what, we're going to kill this guy, just shot him in the head a couple of times, and that was that, but the amount of blood, the guy was quite big, the amount of blood covered about half the air, say, the width of the cell is like from here to here, it yeah. covered half of that, and they herded 130 of us into this space, so, you know, from here to the end of the studio. 130 people crammed into there standing in this guy's blood as a, as a lesson. And then whipped us with a cat and tails coming out of there. Soaked to pair of my trainers in the guy's blood which I had to throw away. Like literally that like, that deep in blood. And the smell. That's what you don't forget. The smell of the blood. The iron oxidising. Just. Ugh, it's that sweet sickly. Not nice. <laughs>
0: That was just one incident. This That was one of the bad ones. but this is I told you in the beginning this was going to get going. Crazy town. <laughs> and that's just one incident. <laughs> and we're at two hours right now. And I think that's a good point to pause it because Peter earlier said he would be willing to come back to do a part two. My voice is a bit yeah. hokey with all these live yeah.
2: streams right now. I'm suffering as well.
0: <laughs> so um, <laughs> let us know in the comments if you would like Peter to come back. Let us know in the comments <laughs> questions you may have for him about what's happened so far and what's going to come next. We'll put them to him at the end, David Macmillan style. Urge people to go down in the description box, check out his book. I don't know if he's going to do any socials before we get this up, but we will put those links down there. There's going to be the link to his Vice, there's going to be a link to his David Macmillan interview. I think David's almost at 10k subs now, so please go down, subscribe to Macmillan. He's doing brilliant stuff and he's been on here you know 11 episodes some of them three hours long he spent so much time with us. He's done 11 episodes He'll, He's the most reoccurring guest. Is he? Oh, I'll yeah. try and top him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, huge thank you to all the new subs. Subscription logo in the bottom right hand corner and huge thank you to people who have gone down in the description box and clicked on our donation links and all our playlists. UK gangsters um, true crime Epstein Royal Family everything. Hope you have Enjoyed this one, probably still in your lockdown right now, if you're in the UK.
2: Yeah. All right, Robin, give us a hope.
0: Let's not break the mics. <laughs> Cheers, man. Great. Yeah, <laughs> well you. done. Thank you. That one just got so
2: <laughs> gripping at the end, I was like, fucking hell. <laughs>